In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow was down just under 200 points today, 190 points. I think down about 230 points on the lows. The Dow, the weakest, I think, of the major indexes, continues to be weighed down by shares of Boeing. But if you look overall at the market, to me, it seems like we are rounding a top in this bear market rally. Another point of concern for the bulls should be the performance of Lyft, which today had its lowest close since going public. 67.44 is where we closed, down just over 4% on the day. You know, uh, Lyft has only closed above its IPO price twice since it's been public, which is what, about two weeks now. The first time was the day it went public, and the second time was Friday. It closed last week. Uh, that was its first close above its IPO price since the opening day. And the fact that it could not hold that rally, to me, makes the stock look even weaker, which should be more problematic, not only for the market, but for a lot of other high-profile IPOs of money-losing companies that are coming out. The other big one coming, I don't know if it's coming out this week. Maybe it is. I know the roadshow is going on right now. And that is for the company Pinterest. Um, and that, that company has been around for about 10 years now, and it's finally going public. And, you know, back in the days of the dot-coms, a company like Pinterest probably would have gone public a year or two after it was formed. Uh, but now they're, they're letting these companies mature quite a bit longer before bringing them public. But one thing that hasn't changed from the dot-com days is that Pinterest still isn't making any money. And you might want to ask yourself, the company's been around for 10 years, right? If they haven't figured out how to make a profit yet, are they ever going to do it? Because at least in the frenzy of the dot-com mania, people were saying, look, the company hasn't made a profit yet because it's only been around for a year. But don't worry, it's got all this explosive growth. You know, we're grabbing eyeballs, whatever it was. But people were willing to bet that the companies would eventually be profitable. And they didn't have a lot of data to go on because the companies hadn't even been in existence for very long uh, before they were going public. It was a rush uh, you know, to, to the market. But now that you've got these companies that have been you know, going on for 10 years, I mean, they've had 10 years at Pinterest to try to figure out how to make a profit. And they haven't done it. I mean, they're not losing as much as Lyft or like Uber, 
But I think I heard six years at $80 million is what they lost last year. So why does the company have any value at all if it's losing this much money? You know, I mentioned this before, um, but because the Fed has kept interest rates so low for so long and the cost of capital is so low, a lot of companies are able to attract funding and stay in business that under a normal free market system, capitalist system, they would have gone bankrupt. And I'm going to be getting to that uh, momentarily because I'm going to spend uh, the majority of the time on this podcast talking about capitalism and and whether or not it needs to be reformed and addressing the points that Ray Dalio made on 60 Minutes and on CNBC and in various uh, other media outlets and in the press. But before I get to that, I just want to stay on this topic a little bit of, uh, of Pinterest because Pinterest has a lot of employees, right? It consumes a lot of other resources that go into operating this website, right? There's land, there's labor, there's capital. A lot of resources are being consumed, right? Resources that could otherwise be, uh, you know, put to some other use, but, you know, they're being used by Pinterest. And the way you know in a capitalist system, if the resources are being used efficiently, is how profitable the company is. Because if the company can combine resources to produce a product and then sell the product for a higher price than the resources that it consumed in producing it, it is adding value to the economy. The consumer gets more enjoyment out of that product than the resources consumed in producing it. You see, resources are scarce, right? But demand is unlimited. And the idea behind an economy is how to satisfy unlimited demand with limited resources. And resources that are utilized for run purpose are not available for another purpose. And if a company, though, is losing money, then the market is basically saying, hey, you're destroying value. You're creating products, but your customers don't even value those products as much as the resources were worth that you used to make them. So you're combining these resources in a way that doesn't enhance value. You're destroying value. And so when companies are losing money, they usually go out of business. That's the free market's way of stopping the bleeding, right? Hey, stop destroying resources. You're being punished with losses. If you are creating value, if you're adding value, you are rewarded with profit. So it's the profit motive that ensures that resources are used productively in a a capitalist system. See, when you have the government using resources, it's taxpayer money. They couldn't care less how much money they lose, right? In fact, if you are a a government agency, your, your goal is just to spend more money. The more money you spend, the bigger your budget is the following year, the more people you can employ. So governments never want to be resourceful with their resources. Uh, They want to, you know, just spend as much as possible. But the private sector is always trying to be resourceful, trying to uh, minimize inputs to maximize profits. And that's how you, uh, you know, you assure that you are creating value uh, with with, uh, the resources that you use. But Pinterest has been, you know, providing these services for 10 years now. And we still have no idea whether or not the users actually value these services that Pinterest provides, uh, value them uh, as much as the resources that are consumed in providing the service, right? Because I don't think Pinterest charges you uh, to use the platform. It's free, but obviously it's not free to put it out there. Then they generate revenue from advertisers, but they don't generate enough revenue to cover the cost of operating the business. Now, you know, maybe they will, but over 10 years, They haven't done it. And I think that if during these 10 years we had normal interest rates, right? if the Fed was not keeping interest rates artificially low, Pinterest would either already be profitable right now or they would be out of business. They would have figured out a way to be profitable, maybe at a lower scale. Who knows? Maybe there is a scale at which the company could be profitable. But what would that company be worth? I don't know. But the Fed has been able to keep this company and a lot of other companies in business. And all of this gambling mentality where people are willing to buy money-losing companies is only there because of the casino-like mentality that has been uh, created by the Federal Reserve and the perpetual supply of cheap money 
that has enabled this and financed this. But again, all the resources that have gone into these companies that aren't producing profits and maybe are destroying value, those resources would have otherwise been invested more productively in ways that might have created more value, might have created better paying jobs for, uh, you know, for blue collar working class Americans. But instead, uh, they were there, you know, uh, involved in, in, in these ventures that are being supported by the Fed. But a, a, a dangerous sign, if you look at the valuation where uh, Pinterest is being priced, the company is being valued at around, I don't know, 11, 11 and a half billion. I think they're looking at a price between 15 and 17 dollars a share, which is the low end of the range that had been expected. And in fact, if you look at the last round of financing that happened back in 2017 as a private round, right, the valuation was 12.3 billion at that time. So two years later, the company is actually going public uh, as a down round. And what a down round means is where you have a round of financing where the valuation is lower than the previous round. And that's not normally what happens with an IPO. I mean, it's possible that you can have a down round while the company is still pre-IPO and raising money, although that could be a bad sign if that happens. But generally, investors do not think that the IPO is going to be the down round. That's supposed to be the big payday where everybody can unload their shares uh, to the investing public. So the fact that they have to price this stock at a lower value than where the last private investors got in is a bad sign. First of all, the private investors who bought in thought they were getting a great deal, right? Hey, I'm getting in pre-IPO. They're actually paying more than the retail public who waited for the IPO. Although it's possible if this was a hot issue that even though they price it at 15 or 17, the first trade could be 18, 20, 21. So it's possible that by the time the retail investor gets a chance to buy it in the open market, it could be at a valuation that was higher than the last private round. But who knows? I mean, looking at how weak um, Lyft has performed, it's possible that there's no pop in this stock and it goes straight down. And if that is the case, that, again, validates my idea that we have run its course on this bear market rally and Wall Street's appetite appetite rather for for speculation is is waning right they're, they're trying to take risk off they're not as willing to buy these stocks on the come and this this whole thing of course is about speculation and and gambling and of course that is the problem and the fact that so many of our resources have been diverted by the Federal Reserve uh, to unprofitable ventures and so many of our resources are going to finance consumption rather than investment and increasing productivity because the Fed has been steering uh, resources to the government and the government has been subsidizing and guaranteeing mortgage debt and student loans, right? A lot of activity has been funded at the expense of other activities uh, that have not been funded, that have not uh, contributed to economic growth. And that is the problem. This is what I want to get to. Uh, Ray Dalio has been making the rounds. He was on 60 Minutes. And of course, 60 Minutes, just what was it, a week or two ago, had um, Jay Powell on there talking about how great the economy is. But now they have Ray Dalio talking about how capitalism uh, isn't working and how capitalism needs to be reformed. And of course, when you have a rich guy like Dalio, you know, one of the most successful hedge fund guys out there, I forget his net worth, you know, 15 to 20 billion dollars, a pretty big number. Right. And, and so he's now telling CBS, right, bleeding heart liberals, hey, I want to come on your show and, and, and basically trash capitalism. I want to basically say that, you know, capitalism isn't working. And of course, uh, CNBC eats this stuff up and that this is perfect for them. This is exactly what they like, a rich guy uh, that's saying that capitalism's no good. So I'm watching this segment. And of course, they, they make a big deal about really showing how rich he is because they start off, they're in his private helicopter and they land on his private yacht and they take a ride in his private submarine, right? And of course, you know what CBS is trying to show is Here's this billionaire with his own submarine, right? I mean, this is crazy, right? Look how much money this guy has. This isn't fair, right? He, he's so rich. And, you know, they're trying to really get people to be envious and think that, you know, this is obnoxious, uh, you know, consumption. But, of course, you know, 
if you look at how much money Dalio probably spends on his submarine and his yacht and his helicopter relative to his total net worth, relative to its, he, what he earns, he's actually probably spending, consuming a small fraction of what he earns. I mean, the average American uh, who has a job, you know, spends everything, right? They, when they buy a car, they're, they're, they're spending a much higher percentage of their net worth than when a Dalio buys a yacht or a, or a submarine. So he's got a lot of wealth that is out there, you know, in society being invested productively. But they want to focus on the, the conspicuous consumption to try to show, you know, look at all this wealth, right? This guy's got this submarine. So mostly they're focusing on all the stuff that he's got, right? Just to, to stir up those emotions. And then, of course, he starts talking about why capitalism isn't working and it needs to be reformed. And what is his evidence that capitalism isn't working? Well, it's because of this huge disparity between the rich and the poor. And he talks about how the rich have been getting richer and how the poor are getting poor and the middle class is getting poorer. And therefore, he concludes that capitalism isn't working and it needs to be reformed. And, and pretty much the only thing that he said, at least the only thing that he said that 60 Minutes chose to air, was he said that he thought rich people should pay higher taxes, that the solution to the problem, the way to get capitalism to work, right, the way to reform it is just to take more money away from the capitalists and give it to the government. Like, we just need higher taxes. And this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense. Capitalism doesn't need to be reformed, right? I mean, Dalio is wrong. The problem is Capitalism has basically already been reformed. What we need to do is restore it. The reason capitalism was reformed was because a bunch of politicians wanted to get elected. And so they promised people who didn't understand capitalism something for nothing. Right? It's not that capitalism isn't working. It's democracy. That is the American institution that is failing democracy. And, of course, the fact that democracy is failing shouldn't surprise anybody. Right? Of course democracy is going to fail. That is the problem with democracy. It is destined to fail. That is why the founding fathers created America to be a republic, because they had studied the failed democracies going back to ancient Greece, and they knew that they did not work. And so they created America as a republic. And again, read the Constitution. It guarantees to every state of the union a republican form of government. Just cite the Pledge of Allegiance, not that that's a legal document, but I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. The word democracy does not exist in the Constitution. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It's not in the Declaration of Independence, right? We were not established to be a democracy. We were established to be a republic. And there's a big difference. And, you know, it's a famous anecdote. Um, Benjamin Franklin uh, walked out of the Constitutional Convention and some people asked Dr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? And his response was, a republic if you can keep it. And what he meant by that is if you can keep it from degenerating into democracy. Because once that happens, then it's all over because the public is going to vote themselves broke. And that's exactly what's happened. The, what's happened to capitalism is the government has ruined it by uh, interfering with it. So we don't really have a capitalist system in America. I mean, we have capitalism to the extent that a lot of the capital is privately owned and a lot of the decisions on resource allocation and production are made based on the market, but we don't have a pure capitalistic system. We have a mixture, right? The government has mixed in a lot of elements of socialism into the economy. So what we have is a blended economy. We have a mixed economy of capitalism and socialism. But then to conclude that capitalism is the one that's failed, that's not true because it's the socialism that's failed. It's when you mix in socialism into capitalism, that's when you, you get the failure. So it's a failure of democracy because the reason that we screwed up capitalism with all these government regulations and taxes and subsidies and bailouts and, and central banks, it was all to appease voters. It was all because politicians wanted to get reelected. And, and so just getting reelected on a capitalist a platform is, hey, let the market work it out, right? That's not how people get elected. People get elected by promising something for nothing. And there is no free lunch in capitalism. There is no something for nothing. You are rewarded based on how productive you are. 
That's why capitalism is the only fair economic system out there because nobody decides who gets what. It's all a meritocracy. It's all based on how productive you are. The more productive you are, the more value you can add to society, to other people, right? the more wealth that you can accumulate, the higher the salary you can command. If you're working for wages, the more productive you are, the more wages you can earn, right? Because it's a market-based economy. There is competition. If you own a business, the better you do at satisfying the, the, the needs of your customers, right? The more money you make, right? If you do a better job than your competitor, if you give your customers a better, higher quality at a lower price, you are, are going to succeed. So anyway, Dalio is on there on 60 Minutes basically saying capitalism doesn't work. And of course, they all eat this up, right? They love the fact that it doesn't work. And now this creates a lot of stir. The next day, I watched him interviewed on Squawk Box, on CNBC, saying the same old nonsense that you know, capitalism doesn't work. And you know, one of the interesting things, he's talking with Joe Kernan, and they're talking about the fact that uh, his company, Bridgewater, accepted, I don't know, $20, 30000000 million, I forget the exact amount, from the state of Connecticut or maybe even the town of Bridgeport, I forget. But he got a bunch of money to leave his headquarters uh, for his hedge fund in Connecticut and not move to another state. And, and basically he said, well, you know, I guess it was a mistake. I shouldn't have accepted that money. Well, first of all, <laughs> if it was a mistake, why didn't he give it back? I mean, who's stopping him from giving the money back? Nobody. And of course... The mistake isn't that he got a tax credit for not leaving. The mistake is that Connecticut's taxes are so high that he was thinking about leaving. Instead of being critical of the state for high taxes, he's now trying to say it was a mistake uh, to try to get a better deal for his company and his workers uh, uh, because the state was overtaxing. But the bottom line is, you know, the, the, the media loves to trout this out, but Dalio is doing a lot of, of damage uh, to capitalism because now even the defenders of capitalism are criticizing it. You know, once you've said that capitalism needs to be reformed, I mean, you've pretty much given up the battle. I mean, capitalism needs to be defended. What we need to do is we need to show how government is ruining the economy and giving capitalism a bad name. The problem is when we don't have capitalism. The problem is when the government substitutes its judgment for the market, when the government tries to pick winners or losers rather than the market, when the government tries to set a price, whether it's you know the, the minimum wage when it comes to working or uh, the price of any product as opposed to the market or interest rates, when you have the central bank setting interest rates instead of the market discovering interest rates. <clears throat> and of course, you know, one of the biggest criti critiques that Dalio has, and you listen to him on, on, uh, CNBC, on CNBC or 60 Minutes, he's criticizing the education. You know, we, our kids are not getting a good education. Yeah, well, whose fault is that? This is a government. These are government schools. What does the failure of government schools have to do with capitalism? Nothing. You know, he talks about how expensive healthcare is. Exactly. Why is healthcare so expensive? It's not because of capitalism. It's because of the government. It's the government's involvement. In fact, the two things that he criticizes the most that he says are wrong are healthcare and education. Well, those are the two things where you have the most government involvement. And again, the only solution that he articulated on 60 Minutes was higher taxes for the rich. How is that going to help? How is giving more money to the government, which is the source of our problems, going to solve the problems? It's not. And in fact, if Dalio is going to say that the reason capitalism isn't working now is because the rich aren't paying high enough taxes, that makes no sense. Because in the 19th century, and I'm sure Ray Dalio is going to say, well, capitalism was working really well back then. Right? It's just that it's not working now. That's why it has to be reformed. But it used to work really well. Well, in the 19th century, the rich didn't pay any taxes at all. I mean, they didn't even have an income tax. So if capitalism worked great when there was no income tax, how can the reason it's failing now be that the rich aren't paying enough in taxes when they're paying a lot more than they used to pay in taxes? Now, the problem is the rich are paying too much in taxes, but so are everybody else. But the reason that's a problem is because the government is too big. What we need to do is shrink the size of government so that the rich, the poor, and the middle class are relieved of the burden of having to provide for the government. Because the more resources we send to government, 
the, the lower our standard of living is going to be. You know, one of the things that Dalio said on 60 Minutes, when he said, I want higher taxes on the rich, so long as the government is responsible with the money and, 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 in, and spends it productively. Well, that's impossible. I mean, th- th- that's never going to happen. I mean, you might as well believe in Santa Claus or something like that. I mean, th- by definition, the government can't be responsible with the money. They can't spend it or invest it because they don't invest, they spend. But they can't do it productively because there is no profit and loss. As I said earlier in the podcast, what causes people to invest their money uh, productively is the market, is the profit motivation, is the fact that they need to make a profit and so they need to be efficient to generate a profit. And if they don't, they're going to lose their money. And people, as much as people want to make money, they also don't want to lose money. So you have market forces that are causing uh, resources to be productive. And then you have the price mechanism. You have a, a, an immediate validation. How do you know that you are creating value? By the price. If you're able to sell the product, then there's demand at that price. And if that price is high enough to generate a profit, well, then you added value. You don't have any of that in government. Government has no profit motive. They have no price structure. They have no mechanism for knowing if the money they're spending is adding value or subtracting it. And in fact, it's always subtracting value because you don't have uh, you don't have the motivation. Like if he if he thinks that the government is going to let's say uh, lift people out of poverty simply by spending money. First of all, we spend a lot more money now on these anti-poverty programs than we did before. You know, the, we fought a war on poverty in the 1960s and, and poverty won. Right, the government can't can't win any wars, and, and 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 so what happens is when you empower a government agency to fight poverty, the last thing it wants to do is eliminate poverty or reduce poverty. It wants more poverty because that means it's going to get a bigger budget. It's going to have more resources. It's going to have more people. Government programs and agencies are there to perpetuate themselves. So if you're a government program or a, and you're, you're supposed to cure poverty, if you cure poverty, well, there's no reason for the program. So you're, you, you're out of a job. So that's not what you want. You want more poverty. You want to say, you know what? Poverty is a bigger problem than ever. We need even more resources. I need a bigger budget. I need more staff, right? That's what they want. It's a perverse incentive. So for Ray Dalio to, to lay out all these problems and then say, hey, the solution is to, is to enrich government. The solution is to take more resources from the productive economy, from the private sector, and send it to Washington, D.C., and that's going to fix capitalism? No, that's going to break it even further. But anyway, so I'm you know, watching all this. Oh, and by the way, I saw uh, the Young Turks. You know, They're loving this, right? They're eating it up when, when Dalio goes on CNBC and starts schooling these guys, supposedly, about how capitalism doesn't work. And of course, the Young Turks hate capitalism, right? So they, you know, they love this. But there was a woman on there. I don't know what her name was. And I only know about this because somebody sent me the clip because I don't normally watch the Young Turks. Uh, I was on that show one time and this guy, you know, Chet Younger, I guess, or Uger, I forget how to pronounce his name. He cut me off. You know, he turned off my mic because I guess he couldn't handle what I had to say. And so I was never invited back on his show. But some woman brought me up to try to say, hey, even Peter Schiff is saying that, you know, wealth inequality is a problem and the government needs to do something about it. And and then the woman said, but Peter Schiff doesn't care. He's not saying this because he cares about the poor people. He's just worried about himself. And he's saying that, look, if we if the government lets this continue, there's going to be a revolution and the poor people are going to come after our stuff. And so in order to keep, you know, the peasants at bay, we need to throw them a little crumbs here. Right. This is what they were saying. I was saying, and of course, I don't know where they're getting any of this stuff because I've never said anything like that. I mean, I do agree that this wealth inequality is a problem. But it's a problem created by government, created by the Federal Reserve. I mean, I was warning years ago when the Federal Reserve first launched quantitative easing. I was warning that this was going to happen, right? that all this was going to do is benefit uh, assets at the expense of the overall economy. I've been warning about this for years. The government is doing this not the market. And so, yes, I want the government to do something about wealth inequality by getting out of the way. I want capitalism to do something about the inequality. Now, of course, there's always going to be inequality. I mean, that's part of capitalism. People are not going to be equal because people's contributions aren't equal. But what is uh, not normal right now is the extent of the disparity. And that extreme inequality is not a function of capitalism. If there was capitalism, 
we would have less inequality. We would certainly have inequality, but the extremes would not be as great as what we're ex experiencing today. That is all because of government interference in the market. It's because of the socialism that has crept into the economy. And I want to get that out. So what I want the government to do about the inequality problem is to stop causing it. I want the government to step back to allow capitalism to function. Again, capitalism doesn't have to be reformed. It has to be embraced. It has to be rediscovered. We have to understand how the government is screwing it up. But what always happens is whenever the government screws up capitalism by interfering and then something goes wrong, it's always the capitalist part that gets the blame. And then the worse the government screws up the economy, the more they can blame the problems on capitalism. And the solution is, oh, we just need more government, right? And so government gets bigger and bigger, and now the problems get bigger and bigger. And now the calls for even more government to do something about the problems grow louder and louder, even though all of the problems are being caused by government. Anyway, after I started seeing this stuff, I put out a bunch of tweets on Twitter. And you can read the tweets. If you're not following me on Twitter, uh, just, you know, make a point and go and, and follow my Twitter account. And by the way, a number of people started to follow my my son on Twitter. He's now got over 1,000 followers. And he actually, he does a lot of interesting research. And he put out a tweet at the end of last week where he looked at the the jobs numbers. And he found that the manufacturing jobs numbers have now fallen for five consecutive months, meaning each month for the last five, we've created fewer manufacturing jobs than the month before. And the most recent month, we actually lost manufacturing jobs, but the numbers kept getting lower. And he went back uh, to like the, the Great Depression, I think, or the 1920s or 30s. And that's only happened like five times. The last time it happened was in 2008. And he said, every time that's happened, we were either already in a recession or we were within a year of a recession. So that's pretty interesting. And we'll see what happens next month if we have an even, another drop in manufacturing, which I think we can easily do. That might even break a record. I'm not even sure if we've had six consecutive months. I guess I'll have to wait for uh, my kid's next tweet. But if you want to follow him, you can see, you know, his, his, his name is Spencer. But uh, I follow him. You can see when you if you go to my Twitter account, he's the second person that I'm following him and you can follow me. But I was putting out all these tweets on my Twitter account. And finally, one of them actually caught the attention of Ray Dalio, who I follow on Twitter. He doesn't follow me, but but I follow him and anyway. So he saw my tweet and he, he replied to it and he basically said, look, you know, and the one he replied to is where I said, if the only solution Dalio has is to raise taxes on the rich and to hope the government spends the money productively, then he has no solutions, right? Which he doesn't. And so then he referred me to his article. He said, Peter, if you want to know what my solutions are, re, you know, check out this article for a deeper dive. And so he, he put the link in his, uh, in his text, in his tweet. And so I replied and I said, sure. I was simply talking about the solutions that you articulated on uh, 60 Minutes. I'll be happy to read uh, your paper. And I read the entire thing, word for word. Uh, it's why and how capitalism needs to be reformed, parts one and two, right? And again, capitalism doesn't have to be reformed. What what we need to reform is democracy to save capitalism. We need to we need to embrace and rediscover capitalism. And what needs to be reformed is all of the socialism that has been interjected into capitalism. We need to we need to get rid of it all, right? But I told him I would read it. And I read it, and I made some notes, and I'm just going to go over some of my thoughts now. Also, by the way, in my retweet to Dalio, I, I told him that I was going to be addressing his paper on my next podcast, and I I encouraged him to listen. So, uh, although I know a half, I'm a half hour in, so I don't know if he can make it through the first half hour to get to uh, where I really start dissecting this. So maybe we can put a note that, that talks about where it starts, just in case he decides to listen uh, to uh, to my to my podcast. So, number one, the first thing, interesting thing, right off the bat, Dalio talks about all the jobs he had by the time he was age twelve. You know, he came from humble beginnings, right? He wasn't born wealthy. He's really a, a rags to riches uh, story, an American dream story, right? Something coming from nothing and and becoming a billionaire, right? That's that's the American dream. He has lived the American dream. But he starts out by talking about the fact that you know by the time he was twelve, he made money delivering newspapers, mowing lawns, uh, caddying, uh, you know, for you know at golf courses, and he 
took the money that he earned and started investing in the stock market. And of course, the first thing that, you know, grabs my attention is, yeah, you know, how many 12 year olds today have jobs? I mean, probably hardly anybody. I mean, what happened to the work ethic? Uh, kids that were 12 and 13 and 10, 11 used to have jobs. I mean, I had jobs uh, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. Very few young people today have jobs. And that's a problem. Now, why is that? Well, one of the reasons is because the government has made it so difficult for small businesses to hire young people uh, with the minimum wage laws and the uh, workman's comp and disability and unemployment and all you know other sorts of laws make it difficult for young kids to, to, to get jobs, right? Um, and, and, and it's these jobs that Dalio had at a young age that are part of the reason for his success. I mean, maybe if Ray Dalio had spent his youth just pay, playing video games, I mean, who knows? Maybe he would, he would still be living in his mother's house. Who knows? But this is the very beginning. And, and, and what are the reasons that we don't have a lot of employment opportunities for young people and we don't have a lot of on-the-job training for young people is because of government and government programs that have made it uh, very difficult for young people to get jobs. But anyway, so let me go on. Uh, so another thing that he starts talking about is the problem of child poverty. Right. Initially, he's laying out all the problems, right? Why he believes capitalism is failing. And so he starts going into all these problems and he starts talking about uh, child poverty and how families, you know, when kids are growing up without fathers and they're growing up in poverty and all this stuff, right? About how this is the failure of capitalism because we have all these poor kids growing up. But not once does he mention why this happened. Right. He doesn't talk about the welfare state. He doesn't talk about the great society. He doesn't talk about the fact that before government got involved with aid to families with dependent children and subsidized housing and food stamps, before the government did all this, families were intact. Right. We didn't have all this poverty. This is all a, a result of government. Government subsidies, the moral hazard around government programs has created and perpetuated poverty, right? We reward uh, unmarried women for having children. We punish them if the father is in the house. The more kids they get, have, the more money they get. I mean, the government has created this culture of dependency. To say that the proliferation of poor children growing up in homes without fathers is somehow a failure of the free market is, is, is completely disingenuous. And I don't see how Dalio can overlook that, right? He doesn't have any criticism of government. He's just criticizing capitalism for problems that government has created because these problems did not exist before the government agencies were created, right? Government agencies that were meant to battle poverty produce poverty, which is exactly what I said earlier in the podcast. Then he you know, complains about education. And about how our kids aren't educated properly. They're not learning enough. And he's specifically calling out, you know, the public schools. Because he says private schools are doing a better job. And, but he, he blames it on the money. He goes, well, private schools have more money. And the public schools don't have enough money. And, 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 and basically he says we need more money for the, for the public schools. Which is complete nonsense. Because the public schools have plenty of money. We are spending more money on our public schools than any other nation on the planet spends on its public schools. We're spending a lot more money today than we spent in the past. The, the, the reason that our kids are graduating without knowing anything isn't because enough money wasn't spent. It's because it wasn't spent wisely. There is nothing in Dalio's paper that criticizes the teachers' unions, that criticizes the bureaucracy in the educational establishment, how much money is wasted and squandered, and how the teachers' unions basically resist any efforts that may be underway for vouchers or, 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 or charter schools. I mean, to say that the failure of the public schools proves that capitalism isn't working, capitalism has got nothing to do with the public schools. That's government. If you want capitalism in the schools and if we had capitalism in the schools we would have a much better outcome in fact what dalio should be advocating for is 
vouchers, right, is a way to get capitalism into the school system, right? Because right now the government keeps it out. I mean, the only way that you can, uh, you know, have capitalism is to send your kids to private schools. But, you know, the market for private schools is much smaller than it would otherwise be because the government is giving out all this education for free. Of course, it's not free. It costs a fortune. But if you're you know, living in a town and paying property taxes, if you send your kids to private school, you don't get a rebate because you're not sending your kids to public school. You're going to pay for the public schools whether you use it or not. So once you've paid for the schools, most people use them, even if they're not that good, because they can't afford to pay twice. They can't afford to pay for the public schools through their taxes and then take what's left over and, and buy the private school. Only very rich people can afford to send their kids to private school. But if the government had a voucher system at a minimum or even just got out of uh, the education business, which is what I favor, but at a minimum had a voucher system, then you would empower uh, parents to actually shop around and then capitalism would be able to work because now private schools can compete for education dollars just like uh, private businesses compete uh, for clothing or for uh, food or for entertainment let entrepreneurs compete for education which company can which school can offer the best value at the lowest cost and let the parents shop around and buy the best education they can afford and believe me the best education you can afford in a market-based economy is going to kick the crap out of any education that you're getting from the government because whatever the government supplies it's going to be subpar right even if the rich are able to buy better educations than the poor the educations that the poor can buy in a market economy is going to be so much better than the education they get now when it's coming from the government but there's no criticism at all of government somehow all this is about uh capitalism and in fact he says that he thinks the teachers should should get paid more money, that they're underappreciated, which, of course, that everybody loves that, right? Politicians love to talk about, oh, the teachers, we need to give the teachers more money, right? You always, you know, win votes. Certainly the teachers will vote for you, right, if you promise them more money. But it sounds like you care, right? Oh, I care about our kids, so let's pay the teachers more money. If you care about the kids, you don't want to throw more money down a rat hole. You want to recognize that no matter how much money we spend right, on government education, it's not going to trickle down to the kids. The kids are always going to get short change. We have to make the kids the customers. right? The government doesn't treat their, their customers uh, right because they're not customers, because they're, they're, they're forced. It's a monopoly. I mean, how good does the post office treat you? Go down to the post office. Get in line. See how they treat you. Right. I mean, they couldn't give a damn if you never come back. They don't care. Right. In order for you to be treated well, you have to be uh, working with a private business that's worried about losing your, you as a customer. They're worried about the consequences of a bad reputation. Right. Uh, government doesn't care about that. Uh, so if you want good education, it's going to have to come from the free market, not from the government. But not a word about that in his entire you know, treaty where he's trashing capitalism and he wants to blame capitalism for the failures of government schools. Right? And then it's not just government schools, it's health care. He's complaining about the high cost of health care as an example of how capitalism isn't working. Capitalism isn't working in health care is because the government won't let capitalism into health care. The government has taken over healthcare with Medicare and Medicaid, but also with the tax code because the government basically tells workers that if you get health insurance from your employer, it's tax free. But if your employer pays you cash and then you buy your own health insurance or pay for your own medical care, you're going to pay income taxes on that. The government is providing a subsidy for people to move into insurance where the market might have a better solution. So you have these third-party payers uh, and you have costs running out of control. Everything that's wrong with, with medicine is from the government. Even look at the, the, the cost of malpractice insurance, a result of these crazy uh, punitive damages that you could get in our, in our broken uh, judicial system. I mean, if we had some tort reform, but none of this is mentioned, right? Somehow capitalism takes the rap, right? The government comes in and screws up. We used to have a beautiful healthcare system, uh, high quality, low cost before the government got involved. Capitalism gave us a great uh, healthcare system and government destroyed it in that it, it, it ran up the costs. And, 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 and now that means that capitalism has to be reformed. Complete nonsense.
Then, you know, in there too, one of the points that Dalio made, and I was surprised that he made this point, is that he actually claimed that part of the problem is, he said part of the problem was that money was going to the rich rather than the poor. And because the rich don't spend their money and the poor spends all their money, it was somehow hurting the economy because the rich weren't spending everything. And it's better to get money into the hands of poorer people because they tend to spend it. And this is a bunch of Keynesian nonsense. I mean, you don't grow the economy by spending money. I mean, people think that when the rich don't spend money, it's just buried in a hole somewhere in in, in their backyard. The money that's not spent is what grows the economy. That's what provides the capital so that we can have, uh, you know, higher productivity. The money that's not spent is invested. Either the entrepreneur invests it himself in his own business and buying capital equipment for his own business, or he invests it in other businesses. Even if he puts it in the bank, the bank in theory makes a loan. They make other loans to other businessmen who need capital to make capital investments and to get their businesses going. I mean, money saved does a lot more good for the economy than money spent. Once you spend the money, it's gone. But saving money can result in capital investment. That's going to pay dividends, you know, over and over and over again. So the fact that he makes this ridiculous Keynesian argument that we need to give money to poor people because they'll spend it and it's their spending that grows the economy, that's putting the economic cart before the horse. In fact, he made another completely idiotic observation. Again, this is part of where he's saying why capitalism isn't working. He made the point that capitalists are just trying to make money and trying to increase profits, which he doesn't have a problem with. But he said that that often leads them to make decisions that are harmful uh, to other people, like automation, like they're going to decide to uh, invest in a, a machine that increases their profits, but at the expense of laying off workers. Uh, or that sometimes they'll outsource and they'll decide to hire workers in another country because they can do it less expensively uh, than hiring them here. And he's saying this is one of the reasons that now capitalism isn't working because businesses are automating and 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 therefore this is destroying jobs, which is complete nonsense. I mean, this has always been a part of capitalism, right? I mean, going back, you know, hundreds of years, uh, we've always been investing in labor-saving devices. Uh, that is not a flaw in capitalism. That is part of the success of capitalism. Again, as I said earlier in the podcast, it's all about utilizing limited resources. Labor is another limited resource. There isn't an unlimited supply of workers. So to the extent that we can automate something, that we can free up human beings from the drudgery of having to do a task, right? Now that human being can do something else, can do something that's maybe of higher value rather than doing something that can be done by a machine. Now, the interesting thing is, in the past, the only things machines could do was repetitive tasks. But now, with artificial intelligence, machines can start to do even more, right? They can do things that we couldn't automate before. That is not a negative. That is a positive. That is going to make society better off. And the people who benefit the most from that type of automation are the poor, are the middle class. See, it doesn't matter to the rich. The rich are so rich that it doesn't matter what consumer goods cost, right? Creating things more efficiently is not going to matter to a rich person because if you're a billionaire, right, you can buy whatever you want. doesn't matter. But a lot of people don't have that luxury. They can't buy whatever they want. But if things get less expensive, then they can buy things. And automation brings down cost. If we can produce more stuff and expend fewer resources in the process, then that benefits the middle class. That benefits the poor. Their standard of living is going to rise in a much greater degree than will be the rich. So the idea that he is attacking automation and saying that somehow because now we have automation, capitalism isn't working, complete utter nonsense. But what he should have written about and what he didn't is where the government causes people to substitute labor for capital when the market wouldn't do it. And that's what's been going on. Here, let's give it, give it an example maybe to, of what I'm talking about. Let's say I, I'm a business and it costs me $15 an hour to employ an individual. 
But let's say the individual doesn't get the whole $15 an hour. He just gets 10 The other $5 an hour is cost that the government adds. Taxes, um, uh, workman's comp, unemployment, Social Security, uh, and then some you know factor for other payroll administrative costs. Maybe there's some number in there for uh, litigation risk because of the you know the, the lawsuits that employees can have. But let's say the all-in cost, uh, the the company decides that it's costing me fifteen dollars an hour to employ this human being, but the human being is only getting ten dollars an hour of the fifteen. Right, the other five is being absorbed uh, with these government mandated uh, uh, regulations. Well, let's say now I can automate and the machine is going to cost $12 an hour. Well, $12 an hour is still more expensive than the $10 an hour that the worker is doing the job for, but it's less than the $15 an hour it's costing me to employ that person. So now I make the decision to fire the worker and use the machine, but without the government, I would still be using the worker. And not the machine, because the worker is still more productive than the machine. What the government has done is unlevel the playing field, make it harder and harder for human beings to compete with machines. And so that creates a less than optimal result. Because if humans are more efficient than machines, then we should use humans. Because we would be better off using humans. We only want to use the machines where the machines are cheaper, where the machines consume fewer resources and then free up the labor to do something else. But if the government artificially increases the cost of labor with regulations and taxes and litigation, well, then the markets are substituting machines for labor, but only because of government. And but for the government, the substitution wouldn't be taking place. So Nothing at all in his treaty here is Dalio calling out the government for all the ways it has contributed to automation and outsourcing that otherwise would not have taken place but for government interference with capitalism. Now, another problem that he that he pointed out, and this is probably the only thing he, he sort of got right, but then he didn't get it completely right. He, he mentioned as a problem the fact that the Fed has to do quantitative easing, that they're printing all this money and keeping interest rates low, and that doing this is benefiting the rich, right? It's benefiting people who own assets rather than average workers. And so he says that since this is now a necessary part of capitalism, that we need to find a way to you know, counteract that by maybe having higher taxes on the rich. So we take away some of those gains and redistribute them. And, and he has a point in a way, but he's missing the bigger point. He's claiming that QE and artificial low interest rates are necessary. They're not necessary. That's the problem. Had the Federal Reserve not slashed interest rates and not done quantitative easing, a lot of rich people would have lost money. Absolutely. Right. And resources would have been freed up and to be invested more productively in ways that would help the poor and the middle class. But to say that now capitalism involves the central bank keeping interest rates artificially low forever, printing all this money forever, inflating asset prices. And so now we have to kind of level the playing field by taxing the rich some of those ill-gotten gains and redistribute it totally misses the point. It is the government. That is doing that, keeping interest rates artificially low and printing a bunch of money is not part of capitalism and it's not necessary. It is government interference. Capitalism would have made sure that speculators lost money. It would have made sure that bad actors were punished. That's capitalism, right? Yes, some people get rich under capitalism, but other people go broke under capitalism. But what the government did is it stopped rich people who should have gone broke from going broke. And that did a lot of damage. But that is not capitalism. And for Dalio to recognize that QE is creating this problem, but then say that, well, we can't stop the QE. What he should be calling for is an end to quantitative easing, an end to the Federal Reserve, an end to artificially low interest rates. He should be criticizing the Federal Reserve for what it did in 2008, 2009. Instead, he's saying they did the right thing. He's saying they had to do it, 
but the consequence was that the rich got richer. It's not just that the rich got richer, the poor got poorer because the resources that would normally have been used to increase the productivity of the poor were diverted to bail out everybody on Wall Street. And of course, what Dalio doesn't point out is that the, the reason that we had a financial crisis, the reason that we had a bubble was because of the government. It was because of the Federal Reserve. It was because Fannie and Freddie. And so now Dalio wants to give more money to the very entities that caused that problem that resulted in the quantitative easing that he now thinks is necessary but has to be corrected with yet more government action. Now, also, ironically, he went on to point out that we have too much debt. That's another problem. Well, duh, why do we have too much debt? Because the government's kept interest rates too low. He just said it was necessary. We would have a lot less debt if it was more expensive to borrow money. Why has it been so cheap? Capitalism isn't doing that. Capitalism isn't setting interest rates. The government is setting interest rates. The Federal Reserve is doing that. There's nothing capitalistic about that. That is central government planning. That is part of socialism, not part of capitalism. So for Dalio to say that part of the problem is there's too much debt, exactly. Why do we have too much debt? It's not because of capitalism. Capitalism would have controlled the debt. What would capitalism have done? Capitalism would have pushed interest rates much higher. What would have that done? That would have stopped people from taking on debt. And that would have encouraged people to save. That would have increased the return on savings and made it more expensive to borrow. So all this consumption borrowing and speculative borrowing would have gone away. The only people who could have afforded to borrow were people who were making real capital investments who could afford to repay the loans uh, at a higher rate of interest. And people would have been saving uh, and, and, and building up their net worth. So every problem, this is the interesting part about it, and you could read this thing for yourself. Every single problem that Dalio points out as an example of why capitalism isn't working is an example of government not working. All the problems were created by government. Had we had capitalism, none of these problems would exist. But because we didn't have capitalism, or we only had some capitalism, but because the government interfered with capitalism and substituted its own judgment for the free market, that's what created the problems. And again, Dalio's solution is to further empower government by giving them even more money and by taking the money from the rich, right, who might otherwise have invested it productively and giving it to the government. But let me get to his solutions, because apparently that is the reason that I was reading this, right? Because Dalio told me, hey, if you want to see my solutions, you got to read this paper, right? Because all you're looking at is 60 Minutes, and the only thing I talked about on 60 Minutes was higher taxes, right? So let me read his solutions. So I'm, I'm, I read the paper, and I'm thinking, okay, let's see what this guy's solutions are. Here they are, right? Number one solution, higher taxes on the rich, right? That's number one. But he does, you know, kind of you know, put a little asterisk on it and says, but he doesn't want to disrupt their productivity, which again, you know, it's not going to happen. I mean, how are you going to raise their taxes without disrupting productivity? Because any money that's sent to the government is money that can't be invested productively. Now, I suppose if maybe they just had a sales tax on luxury yachts or, you know, exotic cars, you know, but how much money is that going to raise? I mean, if you're going to raise significant sums of money from the rich, you, by definition, are going to reduce their productivity. You're going to take away resources that otherwise could have been invested productively in the private sector, and you're going to send them to government where they're just going to be consumed. So right away, that's not going to work, right? Higher taxes on the rich is not going to work. And again, as I said earlier in this podcast, go back to the days before the income tax. We had a very productive economy. Capitalism was working like a charm when the rich paid no income taxes at all. So the solution can't be to tax the rich more when historically the rich are paying a lot of taxes right now relative to what they paid in the past. Now, have there been periods of time where the rich have paid more? Sure. But that doesn't mean that's the ideal that we should strive for. The ideal is when they're not paying any taxes. The ideal is when nobody is paying income taxes. But that's basically, number one, tax the rich. Number two, his next suggestion, more spending on health care and education. Oh, come on. Right. So the government's going to increase taxes on the rich and then and then flush more money down the educational rat hole. Right. Down government health care. I mean, these are already bloated segments of society. Part of our problem is we're already wasting too much money on health care. We're wasting too much money and pretending it's going to education. We don't we don't need to spend more money on health care and education. We need to spend less. We need to have better health care and better education, but we need to spend less money on it. 
And how do you achieve that? Through the free market, through capitalism. You can never achieve that through government. Yet that is exactly what he is advocating as a solution. Now, here's his next solution. He wants the government and the Federal Reserve to work closer together to better coordinate monetary and fiscal policy. That's his solution? Make it easier for the Federal Reserve to print money? Basically what he wants to do. He, he kind of wants the government to have more control over the Fed uh, to make the Fed less independent than it supposedly is so they can be coordinating. I mean, the best thing would be an independent Fed that is a check on the government to try to prevent the government from taking on too much debt. Now, they haven't been doing that. They're supposed to be doing that. But he, but Dahlia wants them to do it even less, wants to make it a formality that they work together, that basically the Fed becomes a bigger enabler of deficit spending, of inflation. Now, of course, all this is going to benefit Dalio as a hedge fund manager. Yeah, this is going to be great. This is exactly what he says is the problem. He talks about how quantitative easing is benefiting the rich, and now he wants to make sure that it, it never goes away. He wants to make sure that the Fed helps the government get bigger and bigger and bigger and run bigger and bigger deficits. I mean, that's no solution. That's pouring gasoline on a fire. Then his other solution is he wants to convene a big commission in Washington. He wants the best and the brightest in government and private sector to come together and find a solution. Well, that means he doesn't have a solution, right? He wants, he wants a commission to study it, right? There's nothing to study. It's not going to work. I mean, I could save Dalio a lot of money. Just listen to my podcast. The solutions are free. Right, I got the solutions. I'm not going to charge anything. I don't need a commission. I don't need anyone else. It's very simple what's going on, right? To fix these problems are easy. The problem is, politically, it's impossible. That's why I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's the failure is democracy. The failure isn't capitalism. The problem is democracy and capitalism could be inconsistent with one another. Because democracy, one man, one vote, right? I mean, if Dalio, who is a very smart guy, right? I'm not, you know, saying he's not an intelligent guy, but if Dalio doesn't understand this, assuming he's being, you know, uh, you know, he, he sincere in what he's saying, he's not. This is not just a scam. He actually believes this stuff. If Dalio doesn't get it, how smart he is? How's the average voter going to understand capitalism? It's impossible, especially since the average voter has been indoctrinated, not educated, indoctrinated in government schools, right? Our electorate has now been so dumbed down by the government, it's impossible for them to understand this. We're, we're, we're basically a nation of morons right now. Why would we want democracy when the average voter is a moron? I mean, why are we going to expect good government? We're not going to get good government. It's a disaster. And the politicians know that they got to get the votes of the morons, right? I mean, I mean, how, I mean if you're just trying to get the, 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 the votes of the people who understand capitalism, that's not enough to win an election. So the question is, do we have the balls politically to do something about this? Because, you know, the Democrats want to make it worse, right? They want to lower the voting age to 16. They want to do away with the Electoral College. They want to, you know, they want to take us further and further away from the republic that Benjamin Franklin and, and his, the rest of the founding fathers entrusted us with and challenged us to keep. And we've already whittled away of so much of the Republican protections against the evils of democracy that were built into our founding documents. Uh, but that's what we have to do. We have to recognize that it's not capitalism that's failing. Capitalism doesn't fail. Capitalism is the most beautiful economic system devised. All we have to do is sit back and let it function. What's failing is democracy because democracy by its nature can't work. It's inconsistent with capitalism because capitalism is fair and democracy is about unfair. It's about getting an unfair advantage, right? Everybody always wants government to give them something, uh, to give them a leg up. People want something from government. And I'm not just talking about people who want welfare. There's corporate welfare, right? There's all sorts of businesses that benefit from government. That's also the problem with democracy, right? Because you have people that are helping politicians get elected, right, by giving them money who are getting something in return, right? So a lot of, you know, a lot of factions benefit. What we have to do is reform that. What we have to do is restore Republican government to the United States. And if we restore Republican government, then we can restore and preserve capitalism. And if we do that, all of the problems that Dalio has you know, listed 
will go away. The market will solve these problems. The market will raise everybody's standard of living. Unfortunately, the policies that Dalio is advocating, if they will shrink the, the, the gap, the wealth gap between the rich and the poor, and I think they can. I think if we come in here and we really jack up taxes and expand the size of government, we will make the rich a lot poorer. No question about that. But we're also going to make the middle class poorer and we're going to make the poor poor. Everybody's going to be poor. Now, it's possible and I think likely that we'll destroy a lot more wealth for the rich than we do for the poor, especially since they don't have any wealth to begin with. So the gap will shrink. Right. If everybody is happy about that. Right. There won't be as big a gap between the rich and the poor in the future as there is today, except the poor are going to be a lot poorer in absolute terms. They're going to live a life that is a lower standard of living. Their quality of life is going to suffer. If it's going to make them happy that there's no longer as big a divide between them and people on the top, well, maybe they'll enjoy that. But I think most people care more about their own lives and their own happiness than whether or not somebody else is happier or living a better life than they are. The key is, are you happy? Are you content? Do you have a rising standard of living? And if, if you want to have a rising standard of living, then you're only going to get one from capitalism. You're not going to get anything from government. Anything that government promises you, they will deliver the opposite. They're promising to improve your life. They will diminish your life. And in order to do that, of course, they have to diminish your freedom. And that should be the thing that we value most is our individual liberty, our individual freedom. That is preserved in a capitalist system. But if you have to empower government to rearrange resource allocation, so instead of it going to the people who deserve it, they, it goes to people who are politically connected, people who make uh, donations or who vote for the, for the winner. If you want the government to basically stack the deck and give them the power to do that, then you surrender all of your individual liberties, you surrender all of your freedoms, and you, you succumb to government. And that is the worst possible outcome. To quote Franklin again, I think he said that those who would give up essential liberties in pursuit of some temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And the same thing applies to comforts and free stuff from government. I mean, if you're going to sacrifice your liberty and your freedom to get something for free for government, you're going to lose uh, your liberty and your freedom. And the irony of it is those things that you value more than your freedom and your liberty, those, uh, the, the, whatever you thought that government was going to give you, you'll, you're going to lose that too. That is the lesson from history. That is what Americans need to rediscover. That's what they need to learn. What we don't need to do is abandon capitalism, reform capitalism, we need to re-embrace the values that made this country great and understand why this country got so great in the first place and government's role, government's role, not the market's role, in destroying it.